0: Welcome to the Integral Stage and to another episode of Metamodels, the series where we talk to the mad scientists of meta systems, the lovers of linkages, the connoisseurs of connections, and really anyone who sees beyond our present knowledge systems and can't help but reach out for greater wholeness and mutuality. Our guest today really needs no introduction, he's the spiritual friend and philosophical father or grandfather for many of us here in the Meta community, it's Ken Wilbur. Welcome Ken. Hello. And Lehman is with me also, and we'll both be uh, asking questions. So, Layman, is there anything you'd like to say by way of introduction?
1: Um, yeah, just hi generally. I guess we're um, grabbing our vision logic machetes and heading upstream into the wilderness with a guy who is one of, if not the major meta theorists of the last hundred years and who sets the mark to beat in terms of coherent transrational evolutionary perspectival mandalas. And I think even though a lot of us have added some idiosyncratic twists, I think most of us have to admit we have not surpassed that mark. So Uh, I'm very happy to have him here to opine on the state and future of meta models and his signature contributions. We'd all be fools not to acknowledge him as a legitimate elder and a pioneering role model for anybody moved by that alchemical urge to remake our reasoning in the form of multidisciplinary intercontextual synthesis. Thanks for being here, Ken. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you very much. That's a wonderful hello. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so hearty welcome from both of us here. And you know, just to start, uh, looking over the from
2: most of you or from all of you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> from <laughs> all of us here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so looking over the the past fifty years, from the publication of Spectrum of Consciousness and some of your, early essays in the Journal of Transpersonal Psychology, right. um, all the way up until now, what would you say has been the, the guiding impetus or drive behind your work, that that call that's been inspiring you all these years and the, the end that you most wanted to see achieved?
2: Yeah, uh, well, just as, as the introduction said, I've basically been motivated by finding holes. And once you get in the direction of looking for wholeness, you're always looking for more wholeness because the wholeness of the universe doesn't stop anywhere that you can put your finger on. And if you think you found an end to wholeness, then wait till you grow to the next higher stage in your own wholeness and you'll see uh, yet further degrees of wholeness. And I think if we've learned anything from watching the growth of our own knowledge, humanity's own knowledge, over the past thousand years or so, it's been nothing but an unfolding of, oh, here's another dimension I didn't even know was there. I mean, when we first broke into the subatomic dimension, look at the entire universe, our universes that opened up to us. It was astonishing. And for whatever reason, my youngest Intellectual memories are looking for holes, greater holes. And I remember I would start out and I'd read, I'd go buy like a chemistry text and read that. Then I'd buy a biology text and read that. And then I'd wonder how they fit together in biochemistry. And it's just, that was the, drive uh, as I say the earliest drive I can remember and it sort of kicked into high gear for me when I became a teenager and started ran into things like Zen Buddhism and that was an entirely new realm of wholeness for me. I remember when I first found out about Zen I read Essays in Zen Buddhism by the great Zen scholar D.T. Suzuki. And when I finished reading them, the main emotion I felt was rage. Because I would say, why didn't anybody tell me about this? I'm like 18 years old and I had to go through that my whole life not knowing about Satori. Not knowing that you can actually wake up to this huge wholeness where, as the Zen master would say, the entire universe is a man's real body. Well, that's bigger than the one I had at the moment, and so I want to know about that and why didn't somebody tell me about this beforehand? I'd gone to Sunday school and learned all of the magic mythic things that you possibly can about the world, and that was initially interesting to me to sort of get an in-depth study of a mythic literal world. But as most teenagers do, when I hit sort of rationality kind of orientation, and I looked back at that mythic literal world, it just didn't hold up very well. And so I dropped that sort of exoteric approach to religions, and it would be several years before I would regain an interest in religion, but on an esoteric level, a Zen-like level, or any of the great perennial philosophical approaches. And at the same time, I was reading I was expanding into discovering Freud and that whole inner world, which was another world of wholeness that I didn't recognize. And what Freud was really showing us is how you could discover a greater psychic wholeness than the average person had. Remember when he was asked, could he summarize what psychoanalysis did in a sentence? He said, where it was, their ego shall become. But the words Freud used when he wrote, he never used the word ego or id. It was always the, which were Latin terms and were put in his writings by his official translator, James Strachey, because he thought it made Freud sound more scientific to have all of these Latin words in there. But what Freud used were the actual pronouns in German. He used the it and the I. Mm-hmm. What he really said is where it was, there I shall become. And that's exactly what he was doing. The it was some split off part of the psyche that was repressed or rendered unconscious. And we could take parts of that it back to reunite with the I. And that would give you a whole and healthy psyche. So that was another type of wholeness. But then when I began sort of intellectually searching for ways to create this wholeness, that's where I ran into a lot of the difficulties with a lot of the personal transformational practices I was involved with. I had, for instance, went out and found a a psychoanalytic therapist because i wanted to see exactly what that was like i had already found a zen master and i was doing that and by the way that gave me the first big dichotomy i had personally which was what do you do with the ego do you make it stronger or do you get rid of it now fit those two together wise guy And so with that sort of impetus, then I began looking back on my Sunday school religion because clearly if everything is right in some very, at that time, slightly amorphous way to me, then what was coming out that was true for the people at those mythic literal stages of development. So, Those were three things that I began working on. And this was when I was about 18 or 19 that I began really thinking about this. And somewhere between the age 19 and the age 23, I hit upon this notion of a spectrum of consciousness. And I began writing that when I was 23. And as you'll No, since you apparently looked at these things that was a way to fit all is when I say all I put that sort of in parentheses but how to fit all of these different growth processes into the spectrum that human beings have and by the way when I wrote that book I still One of the ways that I had used to fit together several of these different concepts was what I would eventually call a retro-romantic way, which was that the infant, because it really doesn't distinguish between its interior and its exterior, and almost everybody writing in the early psychotherapeutic field knew that, and so they, when they would go on and look at like a Zen Satori, which is how do you be one with the entire world, they would think, hey, that's just like we started out with when we were born. We were one with everything. But unfortunately, what virtually none of the retro-romantic saw is that everything literally meant the material body of the infant was one with its material world that it could see and touch. And that was it. In it, the Christian version of the great chain of being, goes from matter to body to mind to soul to spirit, and so it's really just the body, not being able to distinguish itself from the exterior world of matter. So, as Piaget himself put it, the self is here material, so to speak, and that's what it was. It was. A dual, not non-dual, but a dual fusion, undifferentiation type of experience. And so how that's when I eventually hit the stages of growing up, the actual developmental sequence that did end up going roughly from matter to body to mind to soul to spirit then I could understand how the first stage was a a unity with those early stages, the body, one with the material world. And that was, well, because of that understanding, I was very open to the romantic version of what humans go through, which is we start out whole and one with everything, then the nasty ego and thought comes along and breaks it up. So we're moving to an alienated existential state. And then the bright ones that would work their way up that far would see that you can actually go further into a Zen Satori or an ultimate unity consciousness. And when I got that understanding, then that sort of cleared up my romantic misconceptions about it. But the reason I brought that up is I wanted to say that when I wrote that first book, when I was 23, when I wrote Spectrum of Consciousness, I still had that general romantic view in mind. I was continuing my study of developmental psychology, and I was getting it more and more precisely what was actually happening. And at that point, it really became clear to me that it, it wasn't according to the romantic viewpoint and that we really did have this expanding spectrum of consciousness that continued and did so in a relatively schematic fashion. So it did tend to go from matter to body, to mind, to soul, to spirit. And as I studied the perennial philosophers more and more, I got a really clearer understanding of what those stages were actually were. And so Yogacara Buddhism has five senses, and then it adds the sixth sense, which is the mono, Vijnana, or the mental level, and then above that is the manas, or the actual existential existence of a separate self, and then beyond that, the um, vijnana, the Allah vijnana, the alaya, the all-mind mm. consciousness. And so that let me increasingly see that when most, or virtually all, of the traditional meditation systems were drawing their levels of consciousness, they all were fairly coherent, that they all went from a very small self to a larger one, to a larger one, to an ultimately infinite one. But in spectrum of consciousness, wherever I got near to talking about the mind of a child or where this all started, I'd noticed that I would just stop and veer around the topic. And so it was like I had some part of my mind was always looking not only for what was there, what was true, but it was somehow fairly highly alert to what wasn't true. And I never really noticed that until Shambhala asked me to bring out a first version of my collected works. So I had to go back and read everything. And that's when I particularly noticed that aspect of the work that I've done. So relatively content with the fact that, I mean, I know some writers that they write a book and up two years later, they'll say, no, I don't believe any of that anymore. But I probably can stand by close to 90% of the stuff I've written. Uh, and that's always made me feel an interior sort of satisfaction. Um, nice. But it all came out of that initial impulse to find wholeness.
1: So your life is this uh, journey of discovering new forms of wholeness and working to put things together that might otherwise seem contradictory. I- I'm curious where you see open challenges or opportunities for people to do that same kind of thing moving forward. Like, right. If you were, if you were starting out now, what would be the problems you'd be trying to solve that other people might want to be working on?
2: That's um, a similar ish question that you've asked me in different ways. Uh, one or two times in the, um, manual of today's discussion that you sent me. Um, I would probably, well, whatever I would do, it would very much want to include an extensive look at the web and at not only how it's produced by which levels of consciousness or development, but also how it's impacting the various levels because one of the things that you hear besides the obvious interconnectivity of the web there's always somebody there to tell you that is wreaking havoc on all of our youngsters all of our early adolescents have an increase in anxiety an increase in clinical depression a higher rate of suicide than any previous generation so that would, I mean, I obviously, I I think about it a lot and have ever since I've heard these kinds of statistics, which has been at least 10 years or so. But if I was writing today, I I would almost start from that point of view, because it really did, when the internet first came up, it really did open an entirely new world to us. And it has its own areas of wholeness. And it has ways that those areas get split up and divided and polarized. So we've got an enormous polarization in this country now. And most experts point to, well, it's somehow related to the web. I'm not sure exactly how, but all of our heavens and all of our hells in the web age are connected to the web. So I would, definitely start with that. I'm always looking for different areas of wholeness that can be included. And particularly if there are any pathways through that area that themselves show increasing degrees of wholeness. In other words, there's a developmental sequence through it. And Since development, as I use it, is really just another name for evolution. And since the discovery of evolution has pretty much marked the modern era. And so when we look at our universe today, um, most experts see it starting, actually starting with the Big Bang. Of course, there are some areas, we'll talk about those, I think, in another question that include like multiverses and so on. But we certainly don't deny the process of evolution that was set in motion with the Big Bang and just continued now through, well, if you look at the great chain of being again, even from just the Christian terms, it went from matter to bodies to mind. So we're about two thirds the way up the great chain of being. So that does mean if we just stick to this version of the great chain, that some place in our future, it might be fairly quickly, it might be 100 years or 200 years or more from now, but will be its soul as an average level of most human beings growing up. And then at some point, we'll return to spirit. If the great traditions uh, have anything to say about that. If that does happen, I would see it sort of the whole point of this spectrum, this great chain of being is that spirit starts out sort of all by itself. And is just the only thing in existence. And then it blows itself outward and it steps down a degree when it does that. So out of spirit comes soul. And then continuing that thrust, out of soul comes mind, out of mind comes body, and out of body comes matter. And when matter actually came into pre-existence or in the involutionary strain, then pow, the material universe blew into existence. It didn't have any living bodies or any conceptual minds or any awakened souls or anything like that but then it started to return to itself. And the force of that was eros or evolution, an evolutionary thrust. And so that evolution sort of marks what we are, and certainly how we think of most things in existence that we can track them back in time and see when they first began. So that's something that you definitely want to take into account with anything you're working on. I said that usually I look for areas that you can see directional increase. And that's certainly true with the Big Bang. I mean, it certainly went from subatomic particles and quarks to atoms to molecules. And then when we hit the body levels, living cells popped into being. And then as those move towards mental areas, they came together in ever greater, more complex organisms, fish to amphibians, to reptiles, to mammals, and eventually mammals that could think, came into existence so then we have mind as if i'm correct at that the great chain of being does have a certain type of of existence and that the coming into existence of the big bang was simply spirit throwing itself outward all the way down the great chain to its lowest level and it blew into existence and at ever since has been attempting to put things back together. Um, And I would examine the nature of that chain to see if like most perennial philosophers think the great chain is a universal among religions. I certainly found few if any religions that don't have some version of levels of consciousness or stages of meditation or stages of existence. Um, And as far as I can tell, every time I found a stage, it is some variation on that simple expanding core. When I started looking for increases through these areas of wholeness, That's when I came on developmental psychology and developmental studies. And after some time, really getting to know developmental studies well, it slowly started dawning on me that they were describing the same basic trajectories as the great religions that the perennial philosophy was tracking. And so I obviously began writing those down and Atman project was the first statement of my understanding of that. And then I did up from Eden, which was Atman project looked at the upper left quadrant and up from Eden looked at the lower left quadrant. And at least as I thought at that time, and I still think they were generally repeating these general stages that I found both in individual development and in social or cultural development. And that in itself is just fascinating. And it's sturdy enough that most of the great perennial philosophers who worked on this stuff found the great chain of being to be one of the central components that they could work with. Author Lovejoy, in his book, The Great Chain of Being, pointed out that it was one of the, if not the, most widely spread philosophy in human history. And I think that's very largely true. Postmodernity, of course, trashed all of that, except postmodernity itself does come from a very identifiable stage of development, Um, but they don't think so. So, But it's enough to indicate to me that this great chain has some sort of, well, if we were to describe it in today's physics, it would be some sort of morphogenetic field that it's following. And for some reason, that morphogenetic field has a certain constancy to it. And having constant fields don't interrupt any major chain of thinking today. There are several physical constants, for example, that anybody that accepts science or physics acknowledges. There are several universal forces, strong and weak, nuclear, gravitational, electromagnetic. Uh, Nobody seems to object to those. So I would really be looking into that overall area. Because it does seem to connect up a whole lot of other areas, including the original perennial philosophers with some of today's physics and not the way mostly religion is plugged into physics which is just the quantum mechanics shows that there's a oneness to everything an entire world is intertangled and it all comes from that quantum in action first brings forth some existing material out of the quantum energy potential that might be a part of how the material level gets going but It doesn't explain, as every scientist understands, it tells nothing about where life or the body emerged and then where mind emerged, and let alone soul or spirit. And soul or spirit, even if they're not available today in as a general average of consciousness, they are available in the higher stages of meditation systems. So you're talking about Zen, Zen does have a place for soul and a place that transcends soul into universal spirit. So I think if you could actually find um, some reasonable way to put that morphogenetic field so that it could get a fairly wide reading, that might help simply because it would help us string together some of these other areas of wholeness that have been polarized. And we just don't think um, that they could ever get together. And in part it's because each discipline has tended to focus on a particular level of consciousness. But even if that's so, what understanding of that overall morphogenetic field would do is bring together the disciplines from all the different fields. Bringing those disciplines together has remained the focus of, of my own work. And as I started to explain, particularly when I got into the field of my own personal transformation and started looking at all of those areas of growth and potential development that, were, that human beings were invited to discover. And I think it does take a mind predisposed towards this wholeness. I think you have to be almost born with a desire to do that because otherwise you won't care about the perennial philosophers and what they had to say and all of their kooky ideas. You just look at quantum physics and go, ah, I finally figured it out. We finally got the fundamentals of everything. And of course that's not anywhere close. I've noticed that even in biology, most or many modern evolutionary biologists don't accept the fact that the main forces accepted in physics explain or can explain evolutionary biology. Because what they need is something that most commonly is called an extra force that's known as self-organization. And people, whether it's Stuart Kaufman from the Santa Fe Institute on down, David Sloan Wilson, they're looking at the absolute improbability of life emerging. And not only that, but it keeps growing and it keeps growing. So as Stuart Kaufman puts it, the only way we can explain evolution is through the regular accepted forces of physics plus natural selection plus self-organization. The natural selection alone won't do it because that's based on just a probabilistic mutation with a probabilistic helping it survive and fit in to what's already there. And one of the big changes I've seen in modern science is biology itself increasingly moving towards this realization that there has to be some anti-probabilistic force in the universe. Because otherwise, there's no way we're going to explain biological evolution. It just can't be done. I mean, the first cell that ever came into existence has something like 500 pages of information, encyclopedic, pages of information and there's no way every single one of those pages of different information could be checked via natural selection it's just not going to happen and as obvious as that should have been from the start it wasn't but i have seen many many more as i said almost guess half the field now is looking for some form of self-organization i think it's what Eric Jantz called self-organization through self-transcendence, something along this line, And whatever they end up calling it, that's what it's going to be about is how there's not only are you and I interested in meta models and increasing depths of wholeness. It looks like the universe is too. And we simply, for whatever reason, where one of the, kooky, far-out people that are plugged in to that central drive of the cosmos. And that's why we're interested in this stuff. That's why we write about this stuff. And once you find it and you keep looking, you can find it in a lot of places. Like I now refer to the five areas of the aqua or integral framework as growing, uh, waking up, growing up, Opening up, showing up, and cleaning up. And all five of those areas have an inherent drive towards more wholeness. As I said, even psychoanalysis, Freud is working to help people plug into that. Um, even when he and Jung went their separate ways, it was his initial forays that got Jung and Alfred Adler and Otto Rank drawn into that because he stated at least part of the story so clearly and forcefully that a lot of other minds could plug in and agree with him. And then most of them ended up going their separate ways, almost all of them into areas of greater wholeness. So, well, that's, I guess that's enough for that one.
0: Thank you for that. I'm I'm going to tell my relatives in Texas that my unprofitable interest in meta models is just very <laughs> comparative. <laughs> Excellent. So yeah, in the, the broader integrative meta community that seems to be forming in recent years, there's been a lot of concern recently around two related issues: uh, the meaning crisis, as people are struggling with alienation and, and loss of connection and sense of purpose and also what they call a sense-making crisis as we're wrestling with the epistemological challenges of the internet age and rampant disinformation and misinformation and so on. Um, So from an integral perspective, how do you understand the difference between making meaning and making sense? And since integral theory is sometimes described as a way to make sense of everything, do you think there are unique, if maybe still insufficiently Used or understood insights or tools from integral theory that could help us navigate this jungle.
2: Well, I, I yeah, I I think so. One of the things that I've never myself understood was just how sense making and meaning making according to the people that are using those terms, how do those terms fit together? And sense-making, if you just look directly at at the etymological meaning of those, sense is generally something that you tend, as something associated with the senses. So it's something that you're looking at and trying to make sense of, whether you're looking at a computer screen or looking at the rise of disinformation, or any of those, they tend to be discussed as if they're actual objective realities. And if you can figure out some theory or hypothesis or framework that accounts for all of that, then you're, quote, making sense of everything, because it all fits together, everything that you're aware of. But meaning making, at least to me, always has at least implied that that's something that is directly involved with your interior. In other words, there's some meaning that you actually hold in your life and that meaning could involve sense-making, but that's not all. It can't be reduced to just sense-making. So meaning-making to me is a part of the, incredibly complex, but coherent series of stages of development. And in um, the book I did called Integral Psychology, I went through over a hundred different models of developmental psychology. And I put charts in the back of the book that were included a hundred developmental models. And the stages that they maintained were present. So in spiral dynamics, you get eight sort of major stages. In Levenger, you get nine. Some people included, well, in integral psychology itself, I tended to map out around 16 stages. I've seen models that include higher stages, but 16 were the largest number that I thought at least at that time, and it's still fake, the largest number of stages that had a decent amount of evidence to support claiming they exist. But many models, the average is roughly six to eight models, six to eight levels, and some just included three or four like a simple four-stage model is egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric to integral. And those cover all of the bases fine, but just not much detail. So if you get down to detail, you find, again, 16 or more um, stages that you can map out to show the full scope of growing up and part of what those large number of stages do is they develop a meaning because that starting after the first earliest stages first two or three stages in a 16 stage model starting there the child is almost always trying to make meaning out of its world, and oftentimes that means making sense out of it, because that's largely the world they live in. It's the world that their senses are attuned to, but as they continue growing up, they start thinking and semantic types of narratives, and those all have meaning, and they it's just the nature of this evolutionary sequence, is that as you get to a higher stage, each higher stage, I say, uh, transcends and includes its predecessor. That's actually one of the ways that the universe holds together. If you ever think about how does all of this stuff move forward in time, it either all stays at the same level of complexity, in which case, the moment there was the Big Bang, it would all have been over because it would, it would just stay at the same level of complexity that the Big Bang gave us, which was just almost nothing but this long, large stream of subatomic energy. But because we continue To transcend and include, transcend and include. And that's true even of matter to body to mind to soul to spirit. When human bodies first emerged, they transcended and included all of the previous holons in the universe. Their bodies contained quarks, they contained atoms, they contained molecules, they contained cells, all the way up to where bodies started to run into mind. And that's when they pumped out of the evolutionary stream into existence and the first humans around were making meaning they were also trying to make sense because they had to exist in a sensory world they that snake will kill you that buffalo tastes good whatever the kind of knowledge but all of those were also involved in meaning making systems and those of course got more complex and more capable of being disturbed. And so you, as soon as you had a psyche, fairly soon after that, you had psychopathology. You had things that were going wrong, usually in their meaning-making system. And so that meaning-making, as it continues, up does continue to go through all of the environments that are brought into existence with each level of consciousness or level of development. And those become really crucial, especially when humans began self-reflecting and brought up a self-reflective philosophy, which seemed to happen in its first great initial unfolding in Greece with Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. By the time you get to that degree of mind, you have people self-consciously working on what does the world mean in terms of what meaning structure can I use to hold this together? And so you would have people plugging in to various environments, and then trying to explain what they saw, what they came into contact with. So Plato worked on transcending into the soul or even spirit, and that's what he came back with to explain with his mind. And he gave a, a brilliant, to put it mildly, um, explanation of the universe coming from these fundamental archetypes, or fundamental forms. Aristotle wasn't so inclined. And so he became the first great empirical scientist of somebody who categorized all of nature and divided it up into categories and talked about them in just brilliant fashion. And he also got into meaning-making systems. So he would write on morality and ethics and so on. Um, But all of that, is understandable to me as a meaning-making system, but not just a sense-reflecting system. So I know sense is used in a little bit broader way than just the sensory world, but it does seem to me that that's what people that put forward sense-making that that's one of the realms that they're focusing on when they write about it. There's what makes sense to me. Oh, let me see. This makes sense. And this makes sense. And Oh, even what I'm seeing on this computer screen makes sense. Um, But meaning is a more complex system and it is more subtly defined. So you can find a, Meaning-making system for virtually every major stage of development or stage of evolution that you can come up with, and that's one of the ways that you can tell it's a different stage. Is it Mm -hmm. makes a different meaning out of the world, and that's part of our self-development, and it's part of the world that we reflect. So. I would just, for people that want to keep using those terms, I'm fine with them. I'm fine with making sense of everything instead of making meaning for everything. But at least the ways I hear sense, making sense explained, it always includes some meaning structure. That the person's trying to get across and yet they're not accounting for that meaning structure
1: i wanted to ask how you how you think about cognition because there's this really interesting argument that you have in your work uh where the cognitive line always comes first because you can't emote about or dance with anything unless it's part of your reality Right. On the other hand, people are always looking at how much of our intelligence is subconscious and behavioral and doesn't necessarily show up in terms of what the conscious intellect can recognize. So when you're thinking of cognition, what are you thinking of? How specific or how general is that?
2: Well, I liked one of the ways that you put it when you asked that question. Should cognition be understood as analogous to the pattern recognition capacity of the working stage intellect, or, and this is the part I like, should it be understood more generally as an often unconscious or heuristic ability to work with patterns that it may not be able to consciously detect and expect. And I think that's a part of how far down consciousness goes. And that's what it's doing, even when we don't know it, when we do know it, then we do start to sort of reflect on what it can do. And then it does become, in a sense, the main carrier of that knowing capacity. That's why I always appreciate it when very highly developed systems of waking up, like Tibetan Buddhism, refer to Rigpa, which is their highest non-dual cognition describe what Rigpa actually is, they'll say it's an ongoing knowingness. And that's, in a sense, exactly what it is. So in that sense, it's the same as your sense of I amness, or the witness. Uh, And both of those are transpersonal capacities or aspects of consciousness. Cognition, in that sense. So, yeah, I well, I don't think I have to say any more about that. It's clearly one of the reasons that I say cognition is necessary to cognize virtually any of the other multiple intelligences is that it does seem to be the aspect of human beings, as far as we can tell, If we just list out, okay, what capacity does a human being have? Has a capacity to feel, capacity to think, a capacity to whatever. And we take cognition and we take all of these capacities of humans back as far as they can go. Cognition is one of the ones that goes back further if that's the correct way to put it, than than any of the others. And so even when it's operating in us in a subconscious fashion, as it's growing and developing, it is the first one to push through any capacity to turn back on itself and self-reflect. And that's, even as it continues to grow, it continues its self-reflective capacity. And that's what you see, Um, Piaget talking about as it moves into from pre-operational cognition to concrete operational cognition uh, to post-conventional cognition, which is thought thinking about thought. So it's actually thought reflecting on the capacity to reflect. And in all of those cases... It's cognition, and I think that makes a certain metaphysical sense. In that you have to, for to have a being coming up that's going to go from a subconscious state, which virtually all the rest of the world and most animals are, to a self-conscious awareness, to a trans-conscious or super-conscious transcendence of self-awareness. It could have been uh, that th- cognition carries us through all three of those realms. It could have been any other feeling or capacity that we had. It could be what we call feeling on, um, I mean, it's just, it has to start somewhere. And a good place to start is a really foundational place. And that is what cognition turns out to be. Like I say, it could have have started out being verbiosity or feeling or anything. But it turned out that when we started becoming aware of all these different multiple intelligences and we took cognition and tracked it back, it was the one that went down farther than any other one. And so that's how we ended up recognizing it as being necessary to recognize the other um, strains or multiple intelligences or capacities that we have. And by the way, developmental psychology, of course, backs that up. And um, virtually all schools maintain that cognition is necessary, if not sufficient, to be aware of any other capacity that we have, and that is definitely the case. And so, yeah, I think that's what cognition turns out to be.
1: Thank you. Uh,
0: Relationship is sort of a, a fundamental insight of integral models. You could definitely say wholeness um, is maybe the, one of the the key guiding Insight, but to the degree that we acknowledge that that wholeness doesn't erase differentiation uh, between different elements, right? Then we can also speak about you know relationship and a root word of integral etymologically is tangere, which means to touch, right? And so. There's a. I think it, it started out, as you did, told your narrative, you know, there was this very early insight that when you look around and you see these different paradigms and systems that seem to be ignoring each other or belittling each other or competing with each other, um, there's actually a way that they touch each other, that right. they're related in some way, and that if you have the insight into what that relationship is, it can be very liberating, mutually liberating for them and, you know, generative. Right. And so in my own work, I've been exploring uh, prepositions in addition right. to the pronouns. And uh, Lehman has been developing a, a metaphysics of adjacency. Also yeah, Tell me I,
2: about your prepositions, because I didn't get that at all when I read it.
0: I started looking at the, 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 the competing systems that are out there um, metaphysically. I was looking from a point of view of an integralist. At, for instance, speculative realism and in Whiteheadian philosophy and object oriented ontology, and noticing that some of them were privileging different fundamental ontologies. Right. Um, looking verbally at process or looking more nounally at substance, integral, taking the pronouns essentially and starting from perspectives before anything else, there's perspective. And I started thinking. What if we expand that? Are there other metaphysics that are grounded in some way in the parts of speech? So looking around, I found adjectival philosophies, the the, the philosophies of appearance, the ontologies of appearance, of Asubandu and and people like that. Um, There are adverbial, uh, where it focuses more like on modes of becoming, like Spinoza or or even Whitehead, some, some aspects of Heidegger. And more recently, there have been a lot of philosophies focused on prepositions as that which prepositions the arising of anything um, and, and establishes a kind of relational vector in the appearance of things. So Bruno Latour, Souriau, uh, Michel Serre, a lot of people are looking at what if we start from the fundamental insight into relationship and and, and prepositional relationship is that which prepositions the arising of different kinds of phenomena so there's a privileging of looking at the different ways things touch intersect they're with each other they're through each other they're as each other they're you know so i started exploring that and uh kind of layman and i both have a a sense that the integral model itself right turns on a prepositional insight of the the togetherness, the alongside of these domains.
2: Did you, in those schools that you just mentioned, when you were first studying them, did you find any of them that you thought were just totally wrong? They got everything they said wrong? (laughs) No. No. Okay, that tells me something right there. And what uh, my inherent belief is... And you had a question about critical realism. And I think I would adjust the way my position was presented in that question, just a little bit. It's true that when I say critical realism is based on an external uh, ontology. Or, yeah, that, that I did mean that. But it's not just an exterior viewpoint. The way I tend to look at it is not that, that uh, in other words, I'm trying not to prioritize any quadrant. So I'm not trying to prioritize subjective over objective, um, because I think to do so would be to miss a fair amount of what we're aware of. And my fundamental belief is that all stages of existence have four quadrants at least. And that in the sense, um, those can be subdivided by taking one aspect like subjective versus objective and looking at each quadrant through that lens. If you do that, you get eight zones. It's fascinating to me that although there is almost always some sort of interior or upper left or subjective process that occurs whenever you're knowing some, whatever external reality you're knowing that that external reality is not simply created by that subjective dimension. If if for no other reason than too many you can communicate with too many other people about almost any idea you have and get across the general idea that you're talking about, because even if they haven't looked in that particular area of the universe that you have seen, as you discuss it, they'll get little hits off it. And that's because there's something there that they're hitting off. Of. And it, how can we describe it? Well, that's, I don't know that we can. That's sort of the general idea. Uh, I previously explained that there's sort of a great morphogenetic field. And I think in a sense, that's one way to metaphorically categorize it. And that's why you can actually have these models of development And so many other people plug into them and understand what you mean. And if you actually like spiral dynamics, Claire Graves, if you actually test people, you're going to test them by making up a subjective question, asking them this question. They're going to subjectively think about it. Those are all subjective things. And then they're going to answer. And when you compare all their answers, If you're trying to come up with a developmental model, you'll look for how they grow and become stages of usually greater wholeness or greater something or other, something changes from one stage to another. And that can be, those studies can be usually repeated. And to the extent they are repeated, I think they're bouncing off of some level in that great morphogenetic field. But, you can't just say the subjective creates that morphogenetic field because it's really there in some sense. I believe that. And, but you can't just say it's only nothing but existent. It's just a complete objective existence. Like science tends to believe everything that it examines is an objective reality. And by that, they almost mean a sensual reality, and so empiricism means you have a blank slate and a blank mind until something's put in front of you and then you register it. And that starts creating your whole subjective system. That's just as lopsided to me as the reverse is. So that's thinking, oh, the subjective realm is entirely created by this non-changing ever present exterior or Vice versa, the subjective is the opposite of being created by that. So um, I think in terms of relationship, what we're especially talking about is the lower quadrants, the left-hand and the right-hand quadrants. Now, in a sense, that's very true in a broad sense, because what the lower quadrants are is effectively individual holons in the upper quadrant coming together to form a greater holon. And so if you say relationship is prior and is nothing but the primary reality that exists, that's in a sense over-emphasizing that because each holon has agency and community. So it has its own autonomy and every holon that I can find is in some sort of relationship. And so even the upper right atom is, has subatomic particles that are in relationship. And no atom exists on its own. It's almost always found either with a group of other atoms to make things like a star or something, or it's a part of a molecule and in itself has a visible relationship, which are with other atoms. So I think, well, and, and then you can, what empirical science tends to do, is to emphasize just the agency or autonomy part of something. And that's why when ecology, for example, comes along and runs into biology, there's always been a sort of subterranean fight between them because the ecologists are, they know that these individual atoms and individual trees are all part of a larger ecological system. And that's how they think, individual, biologists tend to think just the individual, just the frog. And we can look at just the frog all by itself. And the evolutionary biologists will say, well, yeah, but where did the frog come from? There's no such thing as an individual frog on its own. At the very least, it depends on sex, which means that there's at least a male and a female frog. So there's always a relationship. Real frogs, living frogs, are always in some sort of relational configuration. So, you have autonomy or agency, and you have relationship or interconnectedness. And I think, although they're not, it's not just that the lower quadrants are nothing but relation, because they have individuals that have their own autonomy. And it's not just that the upper quadrant are just individuals with their autonomy. But the way they tend to interact and break down in the real world is that. Every autonomy has some sort of relationship. And if you focus on the autonomy, you'll be focusing on an individual whole on. If you focus on the relational part, you'll be focusing on a collective whole on. And nature tends to do that. That's why you have upper quadrants and lower quadrants. That's why you do have quarks to atoms, to molecules, to cells. And you can always point to just one of those. But they never exist in the real world as just one of those things. They're always in some sort of relationship. And as usual, when people come upon one of these major aspects of reality, like the first ecologists when they were studying biology and said, wait a minute, there's a whole system going on here. And ecology came out as a separate field of study when people notice those kinds of important differences in the world, because the mind does often focus on one thing, they can often end up latching on to that one important thing they've seen. And because that's what they think about, they try to make a metaphysics out of that one thing. And so we've seen probably as many metaphysical systems that believe just the emptiness and atoms are the only things that have real existence, as we have seen subjective idealists who claim that, wait, it's always a part of a system. And the only real thing is the highest level in that system. So um, I think relationship is at least half of the system that I've pre- presented. And so it does tend to include all the disciplines that focus on individuals and all the disciplines that focus on systems or collectives. And I think that those that's just a a large snapshot of a recursive relationship that goes all the way down. So again, I think that's um, a very important aspect of reality, but it's part of a bigger reality.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. can I just add one little thing there? Um, in, in your integral methodological pluralism, you know, you point out and, and demonstrate really the value of, of cycling through all of the perspectives.
2: You right. really want
0: to study a subject, you know, right. not only to dwell in the upper left or lower right yeah. or whatever. We, we want to circulate through them. Right. And what I was thinking with that emphasis on, on prepositions or relationships is as an element in the circulation where while it's valuable to circulate through, I, I, I call it choreography. Yeah. but while it's valuable to circulate through the pronouns, um, you can also put on a metaphysical lens that focuses on substances or put on a metaphysical lens that focuses on processes right. or put on a lens that focuses on relationships right. or qualities. But you- or
2: or I would, let me just quickly add, or any aspect of what I'm just calling this huge morphogenetic field. Right. And that's why, when I ask you, were any of those philosophies that you were describing did did any one of them just get everything wrong? And you said no, and right because they're plugging into some aspect that's really real, as part of this huge morphogenetic field, and that, of course that means that morphogenetic field includes us. It's enwrapping us as well as everything, anywhere at any level that you can think of, and. That's basically a primary version, my version of wholeness. And so, whenever you, somebody mentions substance or process, or this is what I go, yeah, that's right. Uh, I I have no problem uh, agreeing that those are real and they're really important. Particularly if you're selecting them out and you want to focus on them. If you're doing that, then this whole ontology of verbs comes into play because right. that's what you're doing in essence. So, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that's just a-
0: that's perfect. You added the exact cap on there that I wanted. So, thank you. All right, great. All right, awesome. I
1: I had a couple of questions around the the lower left quadrant of meta theory because in addition to your The models you've been creating. You've also created a language and served as a kind of reference point for people to come together who are interested in these topics. And they're also interested in, uh, you know, similar communities that have some of these same insight structures. Right. And I'm curious about, on the one hand, how you see what's a useful way for these communities to think about relating to each other. And on the other hand, within these communities, how do we go about creating a nice space, a harmonious space that isn't also a fragile space? Because we're always going to run into people who are um, upsetting and off-putting and disturbing. Right. And we want to be able to say, hey, this, we're really trying to create a nice space here together. But we also don't want to be reactive right. Puritan fools because you don't get anything done unless you work with people who you find upsetting. Right. So, uh, you know, that's that, that, that's a that's a big cluster of questions, but maybe you could speak to some of that.
2: Right. Well, whenever somebody asks me about anything having to do about how people get along with each other today, um, I almost always have to bring up upbringing. And the healthier a parent is, for example, and I mean strict psychotherapeutic terminology. But the healthier a parent is and the more it's a two-parent family then all evidence indicates that that's going to be the higher percentage of people raised by those kinds of people are going to turn out so that they won't be this bitchy cranky annoyed easily annoyed person and that's why because we have we, we never have an ideal situation of everybody in a generation being healthy and two family and all of that. But we all always have some wackiness going on. There, every generation tends to change because they were parented quite differently. And as for how would something like that really be engineered or come into existence, I generally would focus on what does society do to help their individuals be whole and healthy psychologically. And that is an entire field of possible directions to go in a very long discussion. But I I will say that I think if you look at the so-called helicopter parents generation, I think that was in part a bit of a mistake because they are always hovering over their pa- their children and they never let them go out on their own and play. And they really turned into a bunch of what are generally called not complimentarily, uh, snowflakes. But this generation that's just is so uptight, and concerned about being offended by anything that they turn into constant, they're the ones in college that's always shouting down people that they disagree with. So they're the ones that are, I don't know, they'll pick on somebody like Ben Shapiro, or Ann Coulter, or those are conservatives i realize but many of the so-called snowflakes are far left in their political orientation and i think in terms of healthy individuals any descriptive term that begins with the prefix far is not going to do very well so far left or far right you, you automatically know they're going to be problems Far out, far, anyway, but that's generally a problem. And I think that's what we're seeing now, um, especially about, I would say, five years ago, they really came of age in college. And that's what started the intensely postmodern attitude. And again, by postmodern, I mean far extremists, which not all postmodernists are. It's a general leading edge of evolution right now. It's what I call the green pluralistic stage. But I think that it was somewhere around Halloween and something like 2015 or 2016 that Students at Yale just went insane because some college teacher, well, the university administration set out a note about whenever, whatever Halloween costume you wear tonight, make sure not to appropriate any themes from any foreign cultures. And that, of course, set off all of the teachers that weren't far left. And one of the teacher sent out a long letter that was distributed to all the students say, look, you can wear whatever you want it for a Halloween costume, just be fairly decent about it. And forget that appropriation nonsense. And it's like it sort of started there, at least it got media attention starting there. And the next year, it hit. We had the whole, uh, almost every major university that you could think of had some sort of protests coming from the far left that were universally described as snowflakes by commentators. And this is what they had, is the way that they fit together and to their worldview, it was largely composed of a lot of broken pieces. And so that's one of the things that you look at in the lower left. Um, And it's very problematic in terms of how to handle that because for the lower left to sort of start healing itself, it has to work on its own individual generators. And that means somehow we have to have the parents be a little bit more open or more relaxed and stop helicoptering or, overseeing or crunching down on their kids. And I think that's a really important area. I think it's also a very hard area to write about. And if I were starting my career over again, uh, that's probably another area that I would focus on. Because what we really have to do is how, particularly when you know as much as we do about psychotherapy and uh, again, there are a lot of schools, different schools in that, but a lot of common areas that are agreed upon. If you have that kind of agreed upon knowledge, how do you transmit that to your individuals? And the major way we have right now is through college, but college of course is one of the major problems where it's hit. So how we go back and grab these parents and say, "Uh, relax, take it easy. They're not going to die. They're not going to kill themselves. But I think that's definitely something that we need to focus on. So that's, yeah, that's the major problem with the lower left is there are people with an upper left that are, part of its essential ingredients. And we know how crazy the upper left can get.
0: Layman and I are getting ready, I think next week to start doing a read through and commentary. Uh, Actually for us, it's a reread through and commentary of your Cosmos trilogy excerpts. Ah. We both agree that those are really important documents and they don't get enough attention right um though i understand is working on something to give them some new attention also so that's great but we want to you know go through and and look at the the excerpts that are out there right now right and you know with it being the cosmos trilogy it's part of a trilogy there's sex ecology spirituality and then what's been released and i wanted to ask you just about the kind of the third unwritten unreleased piece of that trilogy where were you aiming? What, what were the kind of the main insights and, and, and themes that you wanted to look at in, in the unwritten portion? Right. Um, when I
2: first put out Sex Ecology, Spirituality, or Volume 1 of the Cosmos trilogy, and I identified it that way, I did because, as is usually the case for me, most of the ways I think are quite complex. And I'm always, when I write, editing it down. And the first book where I decided I would edit it, not stop editing entirely, but edit it much less was Sexy S.E.S. Because um, I could just sort of keep writing. And then if I, and I'd write it, deliberately at a fairly accessible level and then if i wanted to keep going when i stopped i would enter a footnote and about a third of the book is footnotes it's really book one book two and book three Hmm. and when i finished those footnotes i felt well this is i've got at least three times the amount to say and so i conceived of doing a trilogy And at that time, I'd planned on doing one trilogy each 10 years. And when I got down to it, I found that I was still following stuff that was going on. And that would impact how I would bring out the second volume. And that went on longer than 10 years. It went on close to 20 years. I just, volume two just came out uh, four years ago, The Religion of Tomorrow. And there's still stuff that I'm processing going through my mind. But I can tell you, so I'm still waiting for the time when my mind fills up enough that it says, okay, you've got a book. And it generally does that. It's done it for 30 books. I just wake up one morning and it says book, and I go, oh, fuck, <laughs> what am I gonna do? Um, but it hasn't quite said book yet. But I, uh, what I intended to include were a lot of what went into the excerpts. And I think I call them the excerpts from volume two but they're in in a sense, what was going to go into volume two or three. So um, a fair number of the topics that are dealt with in volume two were ones that I ended up making reference to or bringing into existence by writing about them one way or another. So the eight zones, for example, and that's became fairly clear to me as I kept trying to add up the various really significant epistemologies there were in the world. And I found that four certainly would said a lot, four quadrants said a lot, but because one of the ways I was looking at, at these quadrants was through a subject object lens. And that's how I was dividing up this particular large morphogenetic field. It also had dawned on me for some time that that was a recursive movement and I could keep applying it. And when I did apply it to each quadrant, I got an inside and an outside or subjective and an objective approach to the data that was handed us by the main quadrant, zone one of the quadrant. And i think that's still very true i think it's possible or even likely that anybody who is working specifically in one of those zones zone five or zone seven or any one of them is also still recursively thinking about it so you can have not just a subjective of subjective events, but subjective reflecting on subjective reflecting on subjective. So you can have 12 quadrants if you wanted to push it down that far. But I did find pushing it down one more level to make eight zones was enough to cover many more of these epistemologies that I recognized were present and were important. Um, And so That's a topic that I've covered a fair amount in uh, writing since then. And I didn't cover everything I wanted to say about them. And so some discussion of the eight zones is planned for volume three. Another area that I'm covering quite extensively is the culture wars. and what has become fairly obvious to me is that if you're just looking at where political systems primarily spring from, when orange universal rational first came into existence as a major force uh, in humanity, was basically during the enlightenment, So a good way to track when they came into existence is, when did we get rid of slavery? Because ethnocentric mythic membership levels, they're fine with slavery. And that's why virtually every great religion that is produced didn't have any trouble with slaves. So, I mean, as Thomas Sowell, that great black public intellectual put it, Christian monasteries had slaves, Buddhist monasteries had slaves, virtually all of them had slaves because their center of gravity, no matter where individuals, how high up individuals are going, their social center of gravity was ethnocentric. And that's an us versus them mentality. And if the slaves are part of them, that's fine. Aristotle doesn't object to slavery. Plato doesn't object to slavery. St. Paul says, obey your master and love Jesus Christ. That's it from Christianity? Really? That's what you're going to tell me if I'm thanks so much. That's so helpful. So they were coming essentially from an amber ethnocentric mythic membership stage. When the orange rational stage started to emerge on a fairly widespread way, That's when we actually got rid of slavery, because the fact that orange had emerged on a fairly wide level meant a lot of people had moved from ethnocentric into world-centric modes of awareness. And so when they saw the agency of one person being owned as property by another person, they were outraged the way nobody had ever really been outraged previously in world history. And in a 100-year period from around 1770 to 1870, every rational industrial country on the face of the planet outlawed slavery. Every one of them. And that nothing like that had ever happened before. So you can see that That really did mark a a major significant change in society. And because they were a new force in society, they had to step into politics. And because they were new, they had to dream up a name for themselves. And the name they came up with was liberal, which came from liberté or freedom, that they felt every individual should have liberty or freedom. And that's why we get... Well, men would often write treatises on the world rights of man. And that's when the whole notion of every human being on the planet having equal rights. Again, that just wasn't common view. The previous year was still ethnocentric. Oh, if you're Christian, you're going to heaven. If you're Hindu or Buddhist, I'm sorry, you're going to hell. That's just the way it is. And uh, it's not my idea, it's God's. (laughs) So all of a sudden, the liberals came along, and they predominantly were coming from the rational, universal stage, orange stage of development. And they tended to think in those terms. And that's why they were looking for world-centric rights. And that's why all of a sudden slavery, which was exactly not a world-centric universal rights for all people. That's why that was the first time that humanity actually objected enough to it to outlaw it and simply get rid of it. And you think, that's just 200 years ago. I mean, that shows you how incredibly significant the ethnocentric levels are. And even Robert Kagan, his research shows that three out of five Americans never make it beyond the ethnocentric stage. So again, that's 60% of the population at ethnocentric or lower. So that's a real problem. But orange and amber basically managed to get along for several hundred years they obviously were in conflict and they divided up into political parties and the democrats went with the left and republicans went with the right and by the way they were called the left and right because when this new left was introduced and they started joining the french parliament all the liberals sat on the left hand of the king, and all the conservatives sat on the right hand of the king. And those two terms, the left and the right, stuck. And so somebody who's left is liberal, and somebody who's right is conservative or Republican. They managed to get along as Democrats and Republicans for a couple hundred years until 1959. In 1959, the percent of the population in America that was at green was 3%. By 1970, Jacques Derrida was the most frequently quoted academic in America and green population had moved to well over 15% on its way to around almost 25% in today's world. It's clearly the leading edge of cultural evolution and it's about 5 to 10% at integral stages. But from not being present, in 1959, to being very present from the 60s into the 70s and 80s, where two's company and threes a crowd, when green came along, especially broken green, that's when the culture wars started. And it was the culture wars, as everybody sort of recognizes, are a battle between three major value systems. Amber, traditional, including religious values, modern, rational, scientific values, and green, postmodern, pluralistic values. And those three don't get along at all. As a matter of fact, they pretty much hate each other. And what we see now, the particularly vocal leaders of the culture wars are orange and green is the postmodern versus the modern. And that's where a lot of, well, almost all the far left goes to a far green left, postmodern interpretation. And of course, all the traditional, modern, rational scientists and stuff are still either coming from or focusing on that stage. And then the religious right hates both of them. And it occasionally gets into the fight, Um, but it it definitely doesn't like either one of them. And the people you see, because the far left is sort of taking the lead in the culture wars, when people come along and make sort of a big fuss, it's almost always somebody, even though they're often coming from an integral stage and they're trying to pull together green and orange, because the thing mostly getting stomped on is orange rationality, objective truth theories. They'll, when they give their version of events, they'll cover both sides. But because orange is almost never heard from, when they, people hear the orange side of their view, Um, they'll almost always pitch them as conservative. And orange is is moving towards the traditional level because green is the leading edge level and therefore orange becomes something that you should conserve or hold on to. Um, So just going through the culture wars and looking at how green, far left, Uh, interprets all of these things and looking at orange rational you could call them old left compared to the new left at green but old left original rationalists and original liberals whenever somebody comes out and presents, um, becomes sort of well-known, like Jordan Peterson, he's always interpreted as being to the right. And that's simply because there is this leftist, this far left or new left orientation. And in comparison to that, he appears more on the side of old left, or even since Republicans also moved up a stage. So you have the old right, or the original Republicans stayed at amber. But a lot of them are new right, so-called conser- Wall Street conservatives or conservatives that are very vocal about free speech. Free speech is an orange-generated amendment because that they're into freedom, they're liberté. And the new left doesn't like old left values at all. So they, not, they don't really like free speech and they'll, they won't support it and they'll uh, even attack it. Any speech that they consider hate speech is not free speech. And that's what they'll say. Free speech is not hate speech. Even though the, United, the Supreme Court of the United States has actually come out almost two decades ago with a uh, judgment that hate speech is exactly what is protected by free speech. So you you can say that it's not protected by free speech, but you're wrong, according to the Supreme Court. That's, uh, I'm getting off on the culture wars. And some of the things that I'm bringing up are all part of volume three. So I'm still watching The world to see how the culture wars continues to unfold um so that's yet another item that will have to be filled in before i wake up and go book (laughs) all
1: right i'm putting a wig on for my next question there you go because it's a little bit far out cool how's that yeah (laughs) okay looking good there we go i'm lovely (laughs) all right (laughs) um Sean Hargens and a number yep. of other good thinkers that I speak with are quite insistent that the domain of the alien and the anomalous and the paranormal needs to be more strongly integrated into our meta theories. Right. And sometimes I joke that you know we could sew a picture of the integral map on a carpet, and under the carpet is a mouse. There's a mysterious bump that ignores all the lines on the map. Right. right. And I'm curious whether you think valid versions of entities and the paranormal and the weird will eventually fit neatly into our categories or whether there are things that by their very nature elude our categories and we sort of need an extra category for that.
2: Right. Well, this is one area, except for paranormal events, meta-analyses of like precognition, telepathy, and so on, have shown almost with 100% certainty that they exist. And I've written just that sentence. So that's, but that's the extent that I've tried to explain paranormal events. But one of the reasons that I haven't covered paranormal or alien events is that neither one of them well except paranormal now but certainly aliens don't fit on the overall morphogenetic field that human beings have studied and so as i look out at all the different disciplines and look at how to integrate them all i've never seen one that says alien phenomena the real version and they go into i read hundreds of theories about them. And it certainly doesn't make sense to me that they wouldn't exist. But you know all the problems with it. I mean, why is virtually every actual encounter with an alien UFO done by some hick farmer from Kansas or Nebraska or Iowa? I mean, it's just ridiculous. They never, if they're really around, And they're popping down in Kansas to prove that they're really here. Why don't they just do it in the middle of New York city and just end the problems. They're smart enough to know that most of humanity doesn't believe in them. And that certainly the experts in any field don't believe in them. So that's a bit of a problem. Paranormal though, one of the reasons that it's almost in the same category as aliens is, is that because it does deal with the paranormal or that which is outside the normal, then normal human beings don't believe in it. Or certainly they didn't for, let's say, starting 20 years ago. I think it's really only as those that were crazy enough to believe in it really started doing research on these areas. And we got some real data that those who are actually data-oriented or evidence-oriented, if they looked at it, they tended to believe it. And I've seen a lot of people's responses that, no, I, I think it's really there. So that's I can agree with Sean on at least the paranormal part. That's not to say that I wouldn't write something on it in the future. It's not terribly hard to understand from an integral framework, since integral maintains, if it's there, it's real, and it's actually part of this large morphogenetic field. And the fact that it doesn't fit into any categories that we've found so far, doesn't mean the categories aren't there. If the data shows it's real, that some sort of category is there. It's reflecting, well, some reality. And that reality would be part of the integral framework. So if that means I have to come up with a zone nine, I'll do it. (laughs) But I admit I haven't been drawn to it in the past because when I started writing, it was, earlier than the 20 years ago when people started to change their mind about these things. And so I, it, when, and for the first 30 years that I was writing, it was in the same class as idiotic aliens. <laughs> but um, people trying to figure out why aliens haven't shown up falls into essentially the same category as life on other planets. I mean, because if you just theoretically in any of the categories we have, think about both of them, they're both in the same ballpark. Because obviously if real aliens show up, there's a real life on some other planet ever they came from. But we're having enormous difficulty finding any traces from the big morphogenetic field that point to either one of those. So I'm not sure exactly what that means. I do know, I'm aware of most of the theories that attempt to explain specifically why we haven't yet found intelligent life. And I'm fine with several of them. But I'll say that when humans have to just conjure up stuff, it's a hard thing for them to do. And it confuses them and irritates them. But that's certainly been the case with paranormal. And it's absolutely the case with aliens and life on other planets. So we'll see about how those go. But I'm right. I should... Sean so is right on this. I should write at least about paranormal. Tell him to do it. <laughs> okay, he's good at using integral stuff to write on new things. So tell him to do it.
0: <laughs> in your excerpt G, with your discussion of the subtle energies, you go in that direction a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah
2: I think and, and that's. Um, that's something that, I mean, once you get introduced to there being at least one sort of subtle energy, and if you get into Zen or any of the perennial philosophical practices, you run in to some sort of alternate bioenergy. Because almost all of the cultures where these practices originally came from had uh, several subtle energies and you can't help but notice at least believe in one of them and so but the more i think about the more i've thought about these subtle energies and especially in excerpt g is how would i redraw the upper right quadrant if I were trying to show all of the energies that each of those individual holons were associated with, and what you get from the traditions is that there is a subtle range of energies, as I indicated in, in Exergy, and they do tend to be corresponding to the levels of consciousness that we have, and so that gives us uh, an extraordinary spectrum of subtle energies. And I tried to give sort of an indication of that in excerpt G. So because human senses don't normally perceive subtle energies, that's why they're called subtle energies. Nonetheless, if we could put on a sort of spectrum and see all subtle energies, there would everything and event existing in the material world, and words, everything that we're looking at out of our eyes right now, and touching or feeling, would have a spectrum of subtle energies that we would see. <clears throat> and they would start with prana and then go on up until they got to subtle energies that are infinite. And there would be some, if we saw them each, for example, in a different color, we would see everything popping up around us is a rainbow. And that is always been fascinating to me. And I'm also slightly curious why more people, more experts or authorities in the various fields haven't been willing to acknowledge this area of reality. Because it could be, I mean, I could be wrong, and there might be just maybe one field of bioenergy, and that's it. And there's no other anything on the great morphogenetic field that's going to correspond to anything higher than bioenergy. And some people can sort of see bioenergy, there's the subtle energy layer that all the traditions maintain is around the human body to an area of maybe two or three inches. And then some of them will add, there's a thought layer on going a foot or so larger than that that goes around the (laughs) bioenergy. But the fact that nobody even seems to pay that much attention to the bioelectric energy that's actually around our human body, because you can occasionally find some people like Dr. Beck, I don't remember what his first name is, who's writing about these subtle electric fields around the human body. And he's particularly an orthopedic surgeon And what he found is that by altering or supplementing these electrical fields, you can increase the healing time in orthopedic or bones restructuring themselves after they're broken or surgery or something like that. And it's the usefulness of that bioelectric field that makes me wonder, I'm sure that that part of the subtle energy is present. Because again, we have at least Dr. Beck isn't the only one working on that energy field and certainly isn't the only one that's talked about. So I'm sure that that's got some spot in this big morphogenetic field that they're plugging into and they're really seeing. it. And not only are they seeing it, it has an effect on the actual bone structure. So it's really doing something.
0: And so uh, that
2: makes me even more curious why it isn't, discussed more often, especially given the actual medical positive events that it has on the body. I I just never quite understood that part of it.
1: No, I, I agree. It's always been very strange to me that even the simple bioelectromagnetism right. seems to fall outside of most medicine. And right. you know, part of me thinks it's as simple as the fact that it's invisible. So it's hard to take seriously because we can't see it.
0: <laughs>
2: that's right. That's why it that's why all of these psychic events are subtle paranormal phenomena. We're called paranormal. Normal people don't have precognition or clairvoyance or anything like he or anything. And so they're almost always left out of acceptable lists of what's real.
1: There's a question bubbling up for me, and I, I don't want to be too morbid because maybe you've got lots of years left, but what should I say at your funeral, assuming I'm invited? <laughs> I mean, like, If I was addressing the whole integral community on the occasion of your Maha Samadhi, right. <laughs> what would be a, a true and useful and nice thing to say about you?
2: He's in the lineage of several great philosophers, east and west, going back Plato, Plotinus, all the way up through Eckhart, Whitehead, and so on. The philosophers that most expressed wholeness. And because of that expression of wholeness in so many areas, I'm giving his funeral oratory because this meant a lot to me. Mm. And it helped me because I found that I also have this great interest in wholeness and anything that's broken apart. It's not meant to be that way. And that the, the universe includes brokenness, but it also includes unity. And if you're just focusing on one without the other, you're broken and
1: in a bad way. So Yeah, if you covered that general area only better
2: and longer, um, I, I, that would be fine.
0: Uh, some, something in there, sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's a beautiful question and response. And also for me, not wanting to be morbid, I want you to be here a long time. But I had a similar question looking outward, and that is a lot of, you know, uh, impactful spiritual and philosophical movements with bright, Figures at their center. When the right figure stops contributing, is is no longer contributing, or is gone. Right. A lot of time, those communities rigidify or become moribund, or or get watered down. Right. And especially if there's no heir apparent, right. and often there isn't. Often there isn't someone with the with right. equal scope and, and 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 brilliance to just immediately step in. Right. So, what do you suggest to the integral community in in coming? decades and centuries, how do we develop our collective intelligence to make sure that what you've unfolded with this integral approach remains vital, creative, and relevant?
2: Well, make this collective approach actually collective. So many of the trains of thought or schools of thought or schools of human life that are still present. Now, do go back to a major founder. And even if that founder didn't have an immediate obvious successor, but it still managed to live on, it did that because a lot of people started finding value in what was said. And if they were geniuses or average people, they found value in what this person said. And they found out about it because somebody else told them about it. And that if they had any drive towards what this founder was dealing with, they would be attracted to the things that he or she wrote down about it. And so the best thing that anybody can do to see integral carry on is simply carry it on themselves and share it as they feel appropriate with anybody that they think is would enjoy it. And that certainly includes doing courses on it or teaching about it or just spreading the word, basically. And I think given today's world of polarization and fragmentation that we're going through, an integral approach is an especially effective and ultimately attractive approach. And I found a fair number of academic scholars, for example, who talk about this and are even coming up with their own theories. And they're saying, this is a theory for the integral age. And I'll actually use that phrase. And I think that's a good indication of the possibilities that an integral framework, which doesn't have to mean every single bit of what I've written is out there and accepted and cherished and wondered about and so on, but that the general areas that the framework covers are all included in whatever form of wholeness comes up because they're the areas that have enough markings on the great morphogenetic field to allow me to see them. And if I can see them, I would hope, of course, future humanity can see them. And so the way that they're going to get that chance is by people like Bruce and Eric carrying it on. So I'm enormously grateful for what you're doing.
0: Well, thank you so much. We are very, very deeply grateful for you and your life and everything that you've given through your labor and your love over the years. So thank you.
2: Uh, thank you.
1: Yeah, this has been great, Ken. Thanks for spending some time with us. You bet.
2: <laughs> okay, y'all. Cheers.